Oh, <laughs> uh, sabotage. <laughs> How's everybody doing today? Are we good? We're going in this morning. Who's ready? Are we here? Are we here? Are we awake? Because we're going in today. I hope you guys are ready because it's going to get deep. Bring your floaties, baby. <laughs> I hear you, Isaac. I hear you. This morning marks nine weeks. Nine weeks in the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is four chapters. And as a body of believers, we find value in taking our time when we approach God's word. Today, we begin our journey through its final chapter. And if you're here with us and you're new today and you enjoy the content, Brent does a really good job of filming and uploading our services to YouTube. So if you want to get caught up on the content, a great way to do that is to just go to the YouTube channel, check out the sermons, you know, click the thumbs up or whatever they say. I don't have... James, what is it? Click like, subscribe. What is it? Yep, and then, and then share it on your social media, right? I asked James because James is a vlogger who has a Christian YouTube channel in Anchorage, and his content is good, so I would encourage you to check out his content as well. We want to support one another, and we want to get the good word of God's gospel out into the streets. Last week, in our Bible study, we ended. Everyone was on the edge of their seats, literally. If you weren't, I was up here feeling like I was on my heels on the edge of the stage, like, what's going to happen? <laughs> We're on the edge of our seats as we listen to Naomi address Ruth for the final time in the book, chapter 3, verse 18. We, we imagine that she's either holding Ruth's face or she's embracing her as she's weeping. And she says, wait, my daughter. Wait patiently until you know how the matter turns out for the man, speaking of Boaz, he will not rest until he has settled it today. And the curtain came down on the act. Pfft, lights out. The stage is silent. And we're left waiting. <laughs> What's Boaz going to do? <laughs> We've been waiting long enough. So let's pray, and then we can look to the text to see how it is that Boaz plans to resolve the current circumstances. Father, we thank you for the text of Scripture. We thank you that you sent your spirit into the world. Just as Ethan said, to be our advocate, we have one man, the mediator, Jesus Christ, who stands between us and the Father. And that man who came into the world, who laid his life down, who rose from the dead and who ascended and is seated, he is mediating and interceding. And he sent his spirit into the world to convict the world of sin, to dwell in us, to tabernacle in us, so that we could be the light of Christ to the lost and to the dying. And Lord, we cannot be successful in our mission of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth apart from your spirit. So we pray, Lord, that as a body of spirit-filled believers, we would submit to the authority, not only of the text, but to the spirit as it moves in our midst, changing and transforming us. Lord, bless this study in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in the book of Ruth, and like we said, we're going to begin in chapter 4. The portion of the text is chapter 4, verse 1 through 12. It reads, Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the closest relative of whom Boaz spoke 
was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are seating here and and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witness today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance, so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. All the people who were in the court and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel, And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. It's a big part of the text. And we talk a lot about the importance of doing close readings of Scripture here at AC Squared. What do we mean when we say close readings? We mean that we open up the Bible and we read the text slowly and we look closely at every single word. We make observations based on what we read and then we ask questions about the observations we're making. That's what we mean when we say we do a close reading of the text. This discipline is highlighted by the female Old Testament scholar, Maren Taylor, who observes that The setting of the scene in chapter 4 has moved us away from the privacy of the threshing floor under the cover of darkness, and it's transported us into the public arena located at the city gate. She also writes that chapter 4 transports us, the audience, from a world that's been largely negotiated by women to a world that is dominated by men. Boaz, the man of integrity, the hero of the story, is seeking to make good on his promise to Ruth as he travels up to the gate. Can you guys read this for me, please? And put the next slide up there. Yeah, can you? Hey, and before you guys read this, I messed up the slide count today. So if anything is off, it's Matt's fault. And we need to pray that Ruth just knows that it's not on her. It's on Matt, right? Put your hands together for Ruth. She's doing a good job. 
All right, I need you guys to read this for me. As modern students of the text, we need to constantly, constantly remind ourselves that our understanding of the historical and the cultural context is vital to the process of exegesis. It's vital. What do we mean when we say exegesis or to exegete the text? We mean simply to explain and or interpret the text of Scripture. That's what it means. And we need to understand the historical and the cultural context first. Right, Tommy? Biblical interpretation would demand this is step number one. If you mess this up, you mess it all up. <laughs> so we have to pump the brakes and focus on the first seven words in verse one. Now Boaz went up to the gate. This thing right here, <laughs> this is not what the original storyteller has in mind when he says Boaz went up to the gate. A gate is not something you can reach over, flip the latch on, poof, and stroll through. <laughs> it's not a machine in the sense of a chain link fence on wheels that you can walk up to and just whoosh because it rolls and just walk through. That's not what the author is talking about here. So we have to slow down. When the original audience heard this line in the final chapter of the book, this is what comes to mind. Put the next slide up there. This is what comes to mind. This right here, this portal, this signifies the city gate. This is a reconstruction of the Gezer city gate from the ancient Near East. And this is a schematic drawing of what it looks like on the inside. Very different from our world. It's very different from our concept of what a gate is. Now, I want to explain to you guys, these areas marked as guard rooms. They only function as guard rooms if the city is under siege. That means at war. Otherwise, the men of the city would be working the fields and doing their daily tasks. Which means that when they're not functioning as guard rooms, this area functions as the marketplace. This is the town square. This is where everything happens. This is where the elders come together and they make decisions for all of the people in the city. Last thing. If you live in the city, there's only one way out. There's only one way in. So when you're walking out of the city, going to work, you got to pass through this area. And when you're walking in from work, you got to pass through it. That's why Boaz is going to the gate of the city. Because he knows that if he's looking for somebody, he's bound to find them. Either in the morning or in the evening. And Boaz is dedicated to waiting all day, if it requires, to see the man whom he's in pursuit of. Now, this is not just my opinion. Alan, or I'm sorry, Dan Kent writes that all of the business of the village was decided in the gate of the city and that the elders of the community would assemble as a matter of course to discuss, advise, and, and resolve official matters of both administrative and legal or judicial business. So it's not my opinion. It's the opinion of the scholars. 
And I don't know about you, but when I read verse 1 and 2, let's go to the next slide, it doesn't seem like this is Boaz's first rodeo. He strolls up to the gate of the city, cool, calm, and collected, and he just sits down. Do we know what that means in the ancient Near Eastern context? When the men sit down, that's when the business begins. Think about Jesus in the synagogue when he reads the scroll of Isaiah. And then he what? He sits down to teach them. So Boaz has no issue walking into the city gate and just taking his seat amongst the elders. Now we've already decided that according to the text, Boaz is observant. Chapter 2, he has the ability to ride into the fields and identify the outsider in the midst of all of his employees. He can identify Ruth. I don't know her. Who's that? Boaz is an observant man. So he sits down and he's looking at the crowd, going out, coming in. He notifies the man as soon as he sees him. Hey you! Mr. So-and-so is what the Hebrew says. It doesn't even use the guy's name. Now it's true that Boaz must have known his name. He knew he was the closer relative. But he doesn't use his name. And we don't necessarily know why, but he literally calls him Mr. So-and-so. It's the equivalent of us saying John Doe. It's the equivalent. He tells him, turn aside, sit down. The guy stops whatever it is that he's doing that day with no opposition. And he sits down to engage with Boaz. And I can just imagine Boaz is like, now that I've got your attention, wait here. Gets up, grabs one elder. Grabs two, three, four, ten. I need you. Whatever they've got going on in their day, Boaz says, this is more important. No opposition. They come, they sit down. They're ready to listen to whatever it is that Boaz has to say. Boaz is not just a man of wealth. Boaz is an influential individual. He is a Gabor Hael in the fullest sense of the term. Can you guys read this next passage for me? No, no this one, sorry. Yeah, that's my fault. Next, next slide. We're going we're gonna to wrestle with this. Go to the next one, Ruth. Yep, this is fine. Okay. So we're going to be consistent, at least for now, and we're going to deal with the first seven words once again. Tell me, who is Boaz talking to? Mr. So-and-so, the closest relative. You're right. Now, Old Testament scholar Robert L. Hubbard, not Ron L. Hubbard, but Robert L. Hubbard. <laughs> I've been getting a lot of, are you using some commentary from, no! <laughs> Robert is different than Ron. They just shared the last name, unfortunately, for Robert. Now, he argues that this is an administrative process. He tells us it's not a judicial one. And he says the evidence is the fact that Boaz opens everything up by addressing the other kinsmen and not speaking directly with the elders. So what we're dealing with here is a family matter. And when we read the text, ultimately we see that it will be resolved by the two men. However, we're in an oral dominated culture, which means there must be witnesses if the decision is to be recognized and upheld by all who live in Bethlehem. This is the point of the witnesses. 
Now, is everyone tracking so far? Are we good? Okay, because we're dealing with a legal portion of the text. And we are far removed from how things operated then. So if anybody at any time gets lost, shoot your hand up and let's deal with the question that exists before you just stay lost and you decide to check out. Boaz. Let's do the, the next slide. Boaz literally makes a strange claim here that would have raised the hair on the back of the necks of everyone in the gate of the city. He says, Naomi, the widow, wants to sell the land. <laughs> I need somebody who has their Bible to flip to Judges, or I'm sorry, to, to flip to Ruth chapter 1 and read the first sentence out loud. If you're going to do it, just flip to Ruth chapter 1, first sentence in the first verse. Go ahead, Eddie. Ruth chapter 1, just the first sentence. Thank you. That's it. That's all we needed. What is the setting of the story? The famine is what they're experiencing. What is the setting of the story? In the days when the judges ruled. That's correct, Deb. We have to establish these things because not everybody's aware. <laughs> these are important things. Now, just to be clear, does everyone understand that at this point in time, Israel as a nation is under, or they're at least supposed to be operating under, Mosaic legislation? Do we understand that? Right? The law that God gave to Moses at Sinai is the law that is in authority here at this portion of Israel's history. Are we aware of that? Okay. And does everyone remember that context determines meaning? What are we supposed to do about this then? Next slide. <laughs> I see this and it just blows my mind. Numbers 27. And, giving, or, and give the following instruction to the people of Israel. If a man dies and has no son, then give his inheritance to his daughters. And if he has no daughter, either transfer his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, give his inheritance to his father's brothers. But if his father has no brothers, give his inheritance to the nearest relative in his clan. This is the legal requirement for the people of Israel just as the Lord commanded Moses. Does anyone see the term widow? How is Naomi selling the land? The law doesn't allow for it. Ah, maybe we shouldn't be so wooden when we read the law. Maybe we should read the law as wisdom. Case-by-case case basis. What do we do when there is no law in the 613 commands that we have to deal with something? Do laws influence how we act in certain ways when there is no laws for a specific case? We should, right? It's God's law. But it's not exhaustive. It's descriptive. This is why we have to pause. This is why we have to set the scene in the land of, of Bethlehem during the days when the judges ruled. We need to be clear on all of these things. Back in my old men's group, if I would have stopped right here, the difference makers would have stood up and they would have been like, no way, Matt. Turn back to Ruth and keep reading, dingus. That's what we used to say. Like when we would ask a question, we would be like, did you, did you keep reading the Bible? 
Because most of the time when you keep reading, you get your question answered. So let's take the advice of who would have been the difference makers and let's keep reading. Let's go to the next slide and I'll ask you guys to read this for me. Everybody goes, no! <laughs> no! This is the saddest part in the story. I'm serious. You read this and your heart just goes, oh man, it's so good that Ruth is not there. If she heard this, she would be like, <laughs> no. <laughs> I know, I've been dumped. It hurts. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's fairly clear that after we read this portion of the text, we're not dealing with what we understand to be a simple cash transaction. That means take off your modern Western lenses, set them down, because this is not a sense of buy-sell trade transaction. When Boaz says buy it before those who are sitting here, he's talking about redeeming the land. He's talking about redemption. This concept is something that's foreign to most of us because we live in America. Redemption? <laughs> what am I doing? Going to the pawn shop? I mean, I gave homeboy this and he gave me money and now I got paid so now I'm going to go and I'm going to give him the money that I owe him and he's going to give me back this thing that is valuable. That's redemption, right? Well, that's one form of it. In the Christian world, we have a beautiful theological term. Redemption. I love this word. But it's a word that needs to find its value once again in the church because we have lost sight of what this actually means. In the Christian worldview, redemption describes what Christ accomplished through active obedience. His life, his death, and his resurrection. That's redemption in the Christian lens. But Christ has not come yet. He has not come. It would be years before he would arrive on the scene. So what we're dealing with is very different from both of these terms which have been defined correctly. Multiple definitions for one word? Yeah! Depending on what time and what era you're speaking to and what culture you're addressing. Multiple definitions. We have to deal with these things. In the book of Ruth, Boaz is describing redemption. And redemption in this story has to do with family solidarity and clan responsibility. Say family responsibility. Say clan faithfulness. Yeah, I like faithfulness more than responsibility. Are we responsible to our families? I hope so. Do we have loyalty to our clan? I hope in this body we do, because this is a clan. We're a family. We've already gotten a small taste 
of this from the passage that we read in Numbers. That passage was all about family. But I think it would be helpful if we looked at Leviticus as well. So let's look at Leviticus. Lonnie's going to beat me up. If y'all remember Lonnie, he's going to beat me up for reading Leviticus because he reads Leviticus to fall asleep at night. (laughs) (laughs) Now in Leviticus in chapter 25, we read, the land must never be sold on a permanent basis for the land belongs to me. Yahweh is speaking. The land belongs to Yahweh. America would do well to remember right about now that all of the lines that have been drawn on the sand are imaginary. It's God's land. Don't believe me? Keep reading, for you are only foreigners. Is our citizenship in this world, church? Oh, what are we doing? Sojourning, right? Tenant farmers, working for me, God says. With every purchase of land, you must grant the seller the right to buy it back. If one of your fellow Israelites falls into poverty and is forced to sell some family land, then a close relative should buy it back for him. Go to the next slide. If there is no closer relative to buy the land, but the person who sold it gets enough money to buy it back, then he has the right to redeem it from the one who bought it. The price of the land will be discounted according to the number of years until the next year of Jubilee. In this way, the original owner can then return to the land. But if the original owner cannot afford to buy back the land, it will remain with the new owner until the next year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee year, the land must be returned to the original owner so they can return to the land of their family. Hmm. Redemption. Redemption. We've just been made aware that all of the land which Israel occupies is on loan from Yahweh and that it cannot be sold on a permanent basis to anyone outside the family. Read the conquest narrative and see how they divide up the land. It's very important. It's very important to our understanding of the text. This is redemption. And in this context, it functions as an institution which operates under the authority of Mosaic legislation. It's an act of God's grace and favor over Israel. And its whole purpose is to prevent the family from losing the land that they've been gifted by God. This is the God of the Old Testament. This is our God who descended and condescended to humanity and took on flesh so that we could identify with him because he had no problem identifying with us. Schwab tells us that at this point in the story, Boaz appears to be acting as an agent on Naomi's behalf, but in actuality, he says it's a ploy, which eventually reveals the character and the motivations of the near redeemer, Mr. So-and-so. So let's think this through together. Let me ask you a question. Up to this point in the text, Boaz mentioned Naomi and the land, right? Okay, we've got that. Mr. So-and-so and Naomi would definitely know one another. I mean, Bethlehem is probably like two to 300 people. She knows Boaz, and Boaz says this is a closer relative. Naomi and Elimelech spent their entire lives in Bethlehem prior to the famine. Chances are good that they know this guy. Chances are real good that they know this guy, which means he knows how old Naomi is. He knows she's a crusty old bitter widow. I mean, it's true. Read chapter 1 when she walks through the gate. She's mad at God and she lets all the people in the city know. (laughs) 
So when Boaz offers the land for the nearer redeemer, for the closer relative, it's a no-brainer. Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion are dead, and it's highly unlikely, if not impossible, for her to bear more children, which means that when he redeems the land, he redeems only Naomi with the land. Of course, any of us would take a deal like this. We'd be willing to work the land in this context because it would reap beneficial rewards. We would use those rewards that the land of Naomi, which belonged to Elimelech, reaped to take care of her. And then she would die childless, and we would keep the fields, which means our family wealth would grow. And all the while, because they're from the same clan, the land would never leave the family. This is what you call a win-win situation for the near redeemer. That's why he says, I will redeem it. He's not an idiot. I need you guys to read this next line. Praise God. After reading the man who remains nameless say, I will redeem her, you got to love how Boaz just, hold up, bro. (laughs) I don't mean to step on your toes, but I got to let you know. (laughs) You can't forget about Ruth. (laughs) She's here with Naomi. If you plan on redeeming the land, my friend, go back. Friend, turn aside. (laughs) If you plan on redeeming the land, you must redeem Ruth as well. And unlike Naomi, I've got to make sure the witnesses can hear this one. Unlike Naomi, (laughs) she's not too old to produce a progeny in the name of Elimelech. So if you're going to redeem the land, remember, you're going to redeem Naomi and Ruth, my friend. It's a deal that comes as a package. <laughs> Baggage. Dude's like, hold up. <laughs> I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Well, it begs the question in the story, like, is the story going to end with hollow happiness because romance surrenders to regulation? Is love going to yield to legality? Are we stuck wondering if Boaz compromised his ability to make good on his promise to Ruth because this man has says, I will redeem, and then Boaz has to interrupt? we got to keep reading. Can you guys read this for me? more good news. <laughs> if, if this story lacks anything, it's good news <laughs> for the people in the story. Now, it's safe to say that we as modern readers, we catch wind of passages like this. Isaac, listen up. We catch wind of passages like this, and we don't really understand them. And because we don't understand them, we get angry because we respond emotionally like all kinds of people do on TikTok. Some people don't like this part in the story. They're like, Boaz is a liar. 
He's a trickster. He's a deceiver. He sets Mr. So-and-so up and then pulls the carpet out from under him. He calls him friend. And then he deceives the man in the presence of everyone. I don't like this. Pump the brakes. I would call our attention to the immediate context and the surrounding context. Is there any hint of animosity on display in Mr. So-and-so? How about from the elders or the present witnesses who have now stopped to witness? Okay, so if they're not irritated with what's going on, maybe, just maybe, we shouldn't be irritated with what's going on. You've got to be an arrogant individual to say, you know better than the people in the story. I know better than the storyteller. He's withholding details. If I were there, this would have happened. Bro, chill out, dude. Go write a story and see if people like it. And if they like it, then you can control everything that happens in the narrative. But you didn't write this story. So your reader response, as valid as it may be in your eyes, needs to be controlled by the context of the text. Look at what the Bible says. And then let the Bible lead you in your thinking. Nobody's mad. Nobody's mad. Nobody's calling Boaz out for doing something wrong. In fact, Sandra Richter and Robert Hubbard agree that in verse 5, it becomes clear to us the motivating and driving factors differ between Boaz and the near redeemer. They both say that it's logical to conclude that Boaz was not after the land. Have we forgotten? Chapter 2? It's a four-chapter book. Boaz has multiple fields. As an Israelite, you do not sow two types of seed in one field. He harvests with his employees while Ruth is present, both barley and wheat. This is an implication that Boaz owns multiple fields. He's got enough land. You think he cares about the land? Read chapter 3. What is Boaz after? He's a smart man. He's a shrewd man. And he knows what he wants. He's not after the land. He's got one desire. He wants to marry Ruth. And this was made clear when he made the statement, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. This is the kind of claim that requires seed. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. We don't have to get into detail like we did a couple weeks ago. This would not have slipped by the original audience. They would have immediately identified his desire to perpetuate Naomi's family name. It's an act that requires sexual intercourse, everybody. And Boaz is after that thing so he can perpetuate the name in the land. He knows how the children come about. When they hear him say to perpetuate the name of the deceased on his inheritance, they're like, Boaz wants Ruth. He don't get her apart from marrying her. Context determines meaning. This would not have slipped by them. But it still leaves us asking the question, why did Mr. So-and-so change his mind? What did he mean when he said, I cannot redeem the land because it will jeopardize my inheritance? <laughs> the general consensus among scholars in regard to why he does this is grounded in financial motivation. Raise your hand if you've ever made a decision that is rooted in financial motivation. Everybody. <laughs> 
So why is it okay for us, but not for Boaz or for Mr. So-and-so? Oh, we get on our soapboxes real quick around here. <laughs> Let's slow down, everybody. He's not doing anything different than we would do. Either of them, Boaz and Mr. So-and-so. So don't beat up Mr. So-and-so for doing what we all would probably do or at least consider. We do it every day. Can I buy this cup of coffee? I don't know. Can I pay my rent? Hmm. Can I buy this bag of weed that's now legal in Alaska when I can't pay my child support? Hmm. Hmm. You know? Can I go to the bar and get lit tonight and just wow out and spend it like I got it when I don't? I mean, we all make decisions based on financial motivators. <laughs> Let's get a little context for them and for us while we're at it. It's like a double bonus, you know? In our previous discussion, we already discussed that this guy could have handled the redemption of the land if it were only Naomi. But Boaz kindly interrupted him and reminded him of Ruth. Now, the harvest seasons would have generated profits which meant that the land would have paid for itself over time. However, he's not willing to accept double duty. I don't want the land and Naomi and Ruth. I just want the land with Naomi. He does this because he knows that an heir born to him through Ruth via his seed dictates that in the end, he would be required to give up the land to the son who bore the name of Elimelech. Leviticus. We just read it. <laughs> he knows the law. He understands what's going on. Mm, Ruth is beautiful. I'm going to be drawn to her. She's going to be my wife. We're going to do what the husband and wife do. And if she has a kid, it's going to jeopardize my investment. He may already have other children. We don't know. He may not. He may not even be married. Remember, Ruth's a Moabitess. Is there racial or ethnic motivators that are just too much for him to want to truly embrace this idea? We don't know. When we allow the historical and the cultural context to speak, when we exegete the text, we learn quick, fast, and in a hurry that Boaz is not scheming. He's just willing to call a spade a spade. In the presence of all who stood in the gate of the city, Boaz spotlights all of the unappealing aspects of the arrangement. You got to take Ruth, bro. <laughs> Don't forget she's Ruth the Moabitess. <laughs> and if you have a baby with her, <laughs> you're going to lose the land that you pay employees to keep for the next like 20 years. <laughs> so it's not really yours. You're just the maintainer of the land. It's on retainer to her offspring. <laughs> do we want this deal? <laughs> How many of us would do that? Honestly, knowing how we deal with our finances, how many of us would be willing to do something like this? It's a very good question that we should be asking ourselves. Boaz is not afraid to speak the truth in the presence of all of the witnesses. It's no longer a no-brainer for Mr. So-and-so. <laughs> McNoan rightly observes that in the end, just as Orpah in chapter 1 existed to highlight the exceptional behavior of Ruth, 
So the near redeemer in chapter 4 functions as a foil to Boaz. It gives us a very clear compare and contrast. That's what it does. It's a historical event that gives us the ability to make a solid compare and contrast. What is normative? What is exceptional? What kind of people do we want to be, church? Do we want to be normative? Or do we want to be exceptional? Only you can answer that. All of this highlights the exceptional character of Boaz as he's held in comparison in the gate of the city in the presence of all of the witnesses. This is why Boaz has the title, a man of worth in the city of Bethlehem. Can you guys read this next passage for me, please? And without going down the rabbit trail of early and late date authorship, and if you have questions about that, watch sermon number one, because we deal with all of that in our survey of the book before we get into the text. But without going down that rabbit trail, it's clear that the storyteller felt the need to inject this word of instruction to aid those in his audience. Now let's ask ourselves a question. If his primary audience needs help understanding, do you think we need help understanding? (laughs) how much further removed from the story are we than thee, (laughs) right? It's an important thing to go, ah, he's telling me I don't get it. (laughs) I'm going to have to study something if I really truly want to understand this. Often, so often, especially in the American church, we hear that the entire section of the text that we're reading is dependent. That's a very strong word, that the text is dependent on anything. But they argue that the text is dependent on the laws concerning Leverite marriage. So let's test this theory. Because we're about to break down bad teaching. And if you, like I, have had bad teachers in your past, let's just forgive them for not doing their due diligence. I've made mistakes up here. There have been teachers in my life who are bad teachers. But that doesn't mean that we get to go... I'm mad because somebody didn't teach me right. Let the mirror fall down and be like, you should have studied the text on your own, bro, because God has called you to study. To do what? To show yourself what? Approved. So don't blame. Don't play the blame game. Go jam some Kanye West. I love Kanye, man. Don't play the blame game. What? Am I not allowed to like Kanye West? He does. King Jesus, baby. But I'm not talking about King Jesus. (laughs) That Game Over track is fire too, but you probably shouldn't listen to that one either. (laughs) I need to be sanctified. (laughs) Yeah. So remember, they need help, we need help, we're testing a theory. Let's look to Deuteronomy. All right, let's test the theory. If two brothers are living together on the same property and one of them dies without a son, his widow may not be married to anyone from outside the family. Instead, her husband's brother should marry her and have intercourse with her to fulfill the duties of a brother-in-law. The first son she bears to him will be considered the son of the dead brother so that his name will not be forgotten in Israel. But if the man refuses to marry his brother's widow, she must go to the town gate 
and say to the elders assembled there, my husband's brother refuses to preserve his brother's name in Israel. He refuses to fulfill the duties of the brother-in-law by marrying me. The elders of the town will then summon him and talk to him if he still refuses and says, I don't want to marry her. The widow must walk over to him in the presence of the elders. She must pull off his sandal from his foot and spit in his face. <laughs> then she must declare, this is what happens to the man who refuses to provide his brother with children. Ever after in Israel, the family will be referred to as the family of the man whose sandal was pulled off. <laughs> this is far from American. <laughs> We're testing a theory here. We're going to connect the dots. If you were here for Family Sunday, we did a connect the dots exercise with the kids. We connected the dots between similarities and differences. This morning, we're connecting the dots between differences. A, we have zero evidence that neither Boaz or Mr. So-and-so lived on the same property. Week five, in this study, we talked about the bet av. We put the slide on the screen, and it was like a bullseye on the target. You had the father's house, the bet av. Then you had the clan, then you had the tribe, then you had the nation. That's how Israel's society functioned. Neither one of these dudes, as far as we know, lived in the father's house, i.e. lived with Elimelech. B, we have no evidence that the men in question are blood brothers, and it did say brother-in-law. We know what that means, right? Okay. C, according to public negotiations, Boaz had initially prioritized the redemption of the land, not future progeny. D, the elders remained silent on all issues in the immediate context. They don't try to change the mind of Mr. So-and-so. They don't speak up at all. E, Naomi and Ruth are nowhere to be found throughout the entirety of the process. F, both Naomi and Ruth are nowhere to be found. And because they're nowhere to be found, neither one of them can remove the sandal, neither of them can spit in his face, and Mr. So-and-so's family is ultimately forgotten. He's not remembered. So if someone taught you that this is the Leverite law, I'm sorry. <laughs> there are similarities, but despite any of the similarities between Leverite marriage and what's going on here, we have to acknowledge that the texts are absolutely talking about two different things. They can't be addressing the same thing. This is why you can't read the law in a wooden capacity. You're going to hinder yourself if you read the law of God in a wooden capacity. This is what it says. Right, Isaac? Look at what God did. This means he's a fan of. Mm, hold on. Pump the brakes. Let's ask a couple questions here. So after reading Deuteronomy and reading Ruth, it's clear that in the ancient Near East, sandals hold some type of symbolic meaning. Okay, well, some scholars argue that it represents how a man would slip into a woman, and therefore the near redeemer had conceded both the land and Ruth to Boaz by publicly announcing that Boaz was the new redeemer. How do you put a sandal on your foot? You slip right into it. How do you create future progeny? Men, you know what I'm talking about. We have to talk about this stuff. We're not trying to be like coarse or crass for the sake of it. We need to educate our children. Because if we don't educate our children, guess who's going to do it? Their 10-year-old friend with an iPhone and some pornographic film. And he's going to say, this is what it means. No, stop. That's not what it means. This is not love. God says this is love. 
Oh, but I don't want to talk to my kid about that because I'm uncomfortable. You're going to be a whole lot more uncomfortable when you find out your kid has been watching gay porn. And he doesn't know what to do because he's, tra he's tragically gravitating toward the same sex. He's not even going to be able to make an informed decision because his mind has been warped by content. Oh, well, Matt, you're indoctrinating him. I'm telling them to think. This is what God says. By the way, you have the freedom to do whatever it is you want with your body. My advice would be to honor God in your body. You want to pursue that? I love you. But I believe that God has more for you. That's not indoctrination. Options are on the table. You can do you. But guess what? Everything that we do has a consequence attached to it. Think. Think. Think for yourself. If I were trying to indoctrinate, I would show them straight pornography. This is what a man does. This is what dominance looks like. No. It's grotesque. A man knows how to exercise self-control. We need to talk about these things with our children, people. Because if we don't talk about with these things with our children, the next generation is going to fall. Just look out your front door. We're not far from it. So what's the symbolic meaning? Does it mean the slipping? The slipping? Is that what it means? I don't know. Maybe. But I'm not, a, I'm not gravitating toward that interpretation. But it is one interpretation. Let's think about the history of Israel. Recall that the land is Yahweh's. Leviticus. We just read it this morning. In previous times, both Moses and Joshua were required to remove their what? What were they about to do? What were they going to do? Oh, they were going to walk on the land. Oh, snap. Are we talking about cosmic geography now? Man, I hope you guys do some Bible study on cosmic geography. It'll blow your mind. The land belongs to Yahweh. If sandals symbolize power, possession, and domination, we learn that both Moses and Joshua embraced the reality that they lacked all of the above when in the presence of Yahweh. By proxy, by their admittance of this, they were acknowledging the lordship of Yahweh and affirming that they could and would only tread on the ground which he allotted to them. This is why the conquest narrative is important, because we see what God allots to the tribes. We should be aware that in Israel's neighbors, in their cultures, to validate a transfer of land the old owner would stand on the boundary line, put his foot on the land, take it off. He would lift up the foot of the man who was buying the land and he would place it on the land. Therefore, showing that he no longer had the authority to walk the land with his sandals, but that this owner had the authority to walk the land with his sandals. I'm pretty sure that if Israel's neighbors were doing things like that, Israel was probably doing something like that too. It's a connection that we don't fully grasp because we don't have anything like that in our culture. As far as I can search the history books, there's nothing like that in the short 200 plus years of America's history. 
That doesn't mean that the odd interjection of the narrator didn't clarify issues existing for the primary audience. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel like we literally just drank from the fire hose. <laughs> right? This is like the fire hose of information on historical and cultural context. Anybody else feel like that? This is a lot of information. So let me just ask you guys, close your eyes. I want to read something to you real quick. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself. I cannot redeem it. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witness this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Melon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. The name of the dead should not and must not be cut off from among his brothers, from the gate of his native place. You are witness this day. All the people present who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house, Boaz, be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will grant you by this young woman, Ruth the Moabitess. Go ahead and open your eyes. I got two questions. Does it seem like anyone in the narrative is lacking an understanding of what's going on? Okay. And after that massive download of information, do we have a better idea of what's going on? Okay. So it's worth it. It's tedious. It's not your normal Sunday morning sermon. But we're not going to marginalize a portion in the text because it's difficult or because it might be boring or because it's not exciting or because I don't want to deal with the realities that the text is forcing me to face. No, we're going to look at them and we're going to grab hands or link arms and we're going to walk through the text together. That's what we do as a family. The way, the way that Boaz has decided to compose himself as he executes the deal, suggests that he is highly motivated to gain the support of the community. This is not just a self-driven effort. He's out to get the approval and the support of the community. We must consider motivating factors such as altruism, duty, chesed, and perhaps even physical attraction when considering what it was that drove Boaz to treat Ruth with such favor. This is other-centered theology. And I pray we never get tired of hearing that term, other-centered theology. We need to place the priorities and the needs of others above our own because that's what God did for us in Christ. Other-centered theology. It's on display all over this short little book. You can't get away from it. To Boaz, Ruth was worth it all. Her status as a foreigner, not a deal-breaker simply an obstacle to overcome. As we look at verse 11 and 12, we need to understand that this was more than an individual victory. It was a communal victory. And we, in this church body, are after both individual 
and communal victories, which is why we talk about the hard things. Can you guys read this for me? The words erupt from the presence of the witnesses. This is prophecy, everybody. This is prophecy. The words erupted, not only from the elders, but from the witnesses in a tripart blessing. In this oral culture, the witnesses functioned as so much more than living record keepers. The first part of their blessing was taken in the name of Yahweh, May Yahweh make the woman. Who, who are they talking about? Talking about Ruth. So the first part of the blessing taken in the name of Yahweh expressed blessing over the outsider. How often do we pray for the marginalized? She was a foreign widow in Moab. God's people asked that Ruth would be elevated to the status of Rachel and Leah. What? <laughs> These are the matriarchs, the wives of Jacob, who with the help of their handmaidens bore the sons who represent the 12 tribes of Israel, as well as an unnamed number of women. We have no idea how many daughters they have. We only know about Dinah. But it's more likely true that they had many daughters and maybe even other sons. The second part of the blessing is directed at Boaz. May he acquire wealth. This is far from our modern understanding of wealth. What's being described here in the text is directly connected to the reality of children, which is why we talk about the children here. The next generation is more important than this generation. If we don't think so, we have a problem with pride, ego, and arrogance. It's directly connected to the reality of children. Children who would come from the seed of Boaz through Ruth. In the ancient Near East, wealth, prestige, and security are directly tied to the size of one's family. In ancient Israel, children were viewed as economic asset and a source of security. What did Naomi pray for for Ruth? Security and rest. She knew that she would need future children if she were going to get those things. And before she would get the future children, she would need a what? She'd need a husband. The third part, the third part of this blessing focuses on the household of Boaz. A blessing which would include both Naomi and Ruth due to their redemption. A bold request was proclaimed on the behalf of their home. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. The shameful acts which we read about in Genesis chapter 38, by this time in Israel's history, are slowly but surely fading into the background. And we can say that because Daniel Block observes that by this time in Israel's history, of all of the line of Judah, Perez seems to be the most significant in its role, which means the good that they're doing is what is being remembered 
between the bad that took place in Genesis chapter 38. Isn't that good news that we're not defined by, our, by the mistakes that we make in our past? We are not defined by the mistakes that we make in our past. We, by God's grace, are being sanctified. Same thing here. And it's not an individual. It's a whole line. It's a whole tribe. It's a clan composed of many families. As a matter of fact, the very witnesses who stood and proclaimed this tripart blessing were themselves from the line of Perez. The line of Perez was prophesying. Prophesying, people. When understood correctly, the witnesses prayed that through Ruth and Boaz, they would have a son who would live on, if not in the same way as Judah, to a greater degree than Judah. And all of the people there, as we just said, were from the line of Judah. These blessings... These blessings which support Boaz in his marriage to the outsider, they underscore a very important thing that we're going to highlight as we get ready to close. They underscore one of the greatest cultural declarations of this chapter. Ladies, listen up. They underscore the reality that namely women's roles in the building of tribes and dynasties and their contributions to restoring families and communities should never be forgotten. Never. Ladies, you are not to be marginalized. We do not look down on you. In fact, we wouldn't be here if it were not for a woman. The text of Scripture, in its cultural context, largely omits females' names from genealogical lists. But that doesn't mean that we should forget them and we should understand that they were not forgotten by the people who wrote the lists either. They were remembered. They were present, and they had value in God's story of glory. Now we get to ask the million-dollar question. What's the point of a study like the one that we just did today? What's the point? Like, Do we get to, like, add a boy? <laughs> We did it. We marched right through one of the legal texts. We exegeted it properly. We're so smart. I wish all the other churches would do the same thing that we do because we take the word of God so serious around here that if the rest of the church would do it, they wouldn't, just, they wouldn't be in the state that it's in today. God, I hope, I hope, and I pray that that is not our conclusion. If that's our conclusion, just immediately fall to your knees and say, God, forgive me because I don't know better. A diverse body, many living stones, grounded on the chief cornerstone with a plethora of gifts and all of them operate to glorify God, not one another. So it's not bragging rights. This sermon was very difficult for me. It's not easy to compile this kind of stuff and synthesize it down to try to feed the sheep. Especially when I'm studying it, I'm like, they're going to hate this. <laughs> they're not going to like this one. This one's going to be boring. I know that. If anyone is aware of what you guys are going to like and dislike, it's me. But we're committed to God's Word. 
that His Spirit would lead us through His Word for His glory and our joy. So the million dollar question, what's the purpose? You know, I know three other men that I could have invited to come preach this sermon. They could have done it in a shorter amount of time and they could have done it with a higher level of clarity. But I can't just delegate my responsibility out. The million dollar question for me is the same question that it is for you. And it's staring us in the face and I don't know if I would have seen it had God not illuminated my mind to it. We are very cerebral. Do you guys know what that means? Okay, we are very cerebral in our approach to the text and everything that we do on Sunday mornings. And we get no gold stars for that. Nobody gets a gold star for doing their study of the text. This is what God demands of us. You don't get brownie points for this kind of stuff. This is the expectation. So what's the point? I hope that this body understands that our theology, our theology, embraces the reality that the gifts of the Spirit are for today. We are not cessationists. All of the gifts of God. All of them. And remember, they're descriptive. It's not exhaustive in the text. All of them are for today. They're available in the New Testament says they're irrevocable. Nothing that we do on a Sunday morning means anything if we don't live in the Spirit. So this begs the question, do we exercise the gifts that God has given us? These are hard questions. Is God calling me to speak in a tongue? In a corporate setting? There's one way we'll know. If you stand up and you rip, God will give an interpretation. And if he doesn't, we'll rebuke the tongue. You'll sit down. We will continue to love you. We'll extend grace to you. And we will pray that when the next time someone rips in a tongue, God will give an interpretation. That's what we'll do. We will read Corinthians in its context and we will have an orderly service where all of the gifts, if necessary, can operate. But if you're going to rip... There better be an interpretation or else we will call you on the carpet and say that's not from God Amen. Amen. we ain't scared the gifts that God has given us are for the greater good of the body first and foremost Ephesians chapter 4 to build up the church to equip the saints that's us so this is the million dollar question for the greater good of our city, state, and nation, the gospel should go to the ends of the earth, Matthew chapter 28. We don't carry the gospel to the ends of the earth apart from the gifts of the Spirit. And I'm not going to tell you that God is withholding something that was present in the text. We can have discussions about it, but we're not going to squelch the Spirit because Paul says, don't do that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Everybody's getting uncomfortable now. Ah, oh, this church is about to get weird. Stop. <laughs> We're not about to get weird. We're talking about biblical. We're talking about biblical principles that will guide our life that we take from the text. Amen. 
We should have zero issue with someone standing up and ripping. No interpretation? Sit down, bruh. <laughs> that ain't from God. Discredit it. And if that happens to you, it's going to affect your reputation in the body, not mine. By the way, I have to get up here and prophesy every single week. It's not easy. Because people get irritated at the things I say. I really wish he didn't have to say that. I really wish he didn't have to say it this way. I really wish he would have done it this way. I don't get to choose. I fall on my knees and I say, Lord, give me what it is that you want me to feed the sheep. I'm the local shepherd. You're the great shepherd. It's tough. This is the point. And I can explain it to you from the text of today. I'm not running off on the rails here. I'm being contextual. Ask yourself the question. Are we really supposed to believe that in the new and better covenant, God's bride, that's us, is going to be outclassed by those who lived under the Mosaic legislation? <laughs> Ask yourself that while you remind yourself you're in the new and better covenant. I felt the hand because I'm very cerebral. The gifts of the Spirit? Lord, no! I am a charismatic Christian. But you actually want me to tell the world that we embrace them and that we should begin to explore what it looks like to practice them? That's scary. Do you trust me? Yeah, but do I have to say that? Yes, that was the answer. We should not be outclassed by those who lived under the Mosaic legislation. The whole town in Bethlehem prophesied together over Boaz, over Ruth, and their household. It's more than fair to say that from their perspective, this was just another day in the gate of the city. This was it. This was their daily grind. Nothing new here for them. How do we use our spiritual gifts on the daily? How do we do it? By faith. That's wisdom right there. By faith. Do we understand that the Spirit of the living God is tabernacling in us? In their day, the Spirit of God was centrally located via geographical location. And yet they were fearless as a community to use the gifts that God had given them to build up their city. Their city. Hmm. Do we embody a similar boldness or do we fear what God has gifted us with? Remember, He has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity. He has given us gifts of the Spirit and He is expecting us to use them responsibly. Yeah. Deliverance ministry, Matt Cain. Ruth Frost. Yes, 100%. If you feel like you need deliverance, we understand that God has saved you. But we also know that the enemy is prowling. And if you're isolated... You may be oppressed. As a spirit-filled believer, you may be experiencing opposition. We will pray for deliverance. Bust out the oil. Call the elders in the city. And let's lay hands on this person and pray for them. Because that's what James says we have to do. Oh, I don't know if I want to be in this church. Well, I don't know. The door swings both ways. I don't know what to tell you. I would rather submit to God than you. Period. Read Acts. 
Just like the apostles then. Just as it is today. I am not worried about what you think about me. I have to worry about what God is going to say to me when I stand before him. The reputation in the city, I want people to honor me as a man of honor, but I don't care if they like me. Those are different things. We do not need to be liked by everybody. Yeah, you got a problem if you are. So do we embody a similar boldness? The prophetic blessing in the near view was fulfilled in Obed. Listen to this. The prophetic was fulfilled in the near view in Obed. Naomi's like, I've got a baby. My family name is no longer on, on teetering on existence, on extinction from existence. I've got a baby. Prophetic word fulfilled. <laughs> That's cute. Obed, Jesse, Jesse, David. The nation of Israel was delivered. By who? Not by Saul. It was united under who? David. The near view and the far view. Prophecy has fulfillments in multiplicity, in repetition, and in pattern. Do we understand the power in prophetic words? The end result. Had Naomi and Ruth and Boaz not been a people of covenant faithfulness, where would we be today? And what I'm describing to you in Obed and David is just one, potentially two, prophetic fulfillments via the words that were spoken over Boaz. Listen to what God says to humanity. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Ladies, I'm speaking to you right now. This is an empowering moment for the women in the body. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 reads, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. You know what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy? Women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Had, Ro had Ruth not been a woman of integrity, Ishahayel, there would be no Obed. No Obed, no Jesse. No Jesse, no David. No David, no Jesus. The near view and the far view. We would be a hopeless world if Boaz and Naomi and Ruth were not people of chesed. No Messiah. No Christian faith. No Sunday services. No extended family. Nothing. The end result of the proclamation would not be known by the ones who spoke it. It wouldn't be understood for years, Paul says. Read Ephesians. And yet they spoke with boldness in the name of Yahweh. Our takeaway from today's study lands us on the opposite end of the spectrum from how we read and study the text. And reading and studying the text is very vital because it ends up informing our faith and our practice. 
However, it's pointless if in the end we refuse to walk out the gifts which God has deposited in us. AC squared, listen to me. Online, listen to me. This church that we operate in right here, we believe that the gifts of the Spirit are for today. We are so much more than gifts of administration and hospitality. And those are very important. This would not happen without administrations and hospitality. But we're barely chipping the iceberg if we stop there. Are we praying for healing? I want to know if Isaac Howell walks in here on Sunday expecting one of you guys to go over and lay hands on him and say, I know that your father is dying from dementia. And I know that God can heal him. And so I want to pray in faith, believing that God will heal Randy. Does he expect that? If he doesn't, shame on us. There are marriages that are failing in here. They're happening. They're falling apart at the seams. And if these people don't expect to walk in here on Sunday and have someone look them in the face and say, I know you're struggling. God gave me a vision. He gave me a dream. And I know you're struggling. And I need to pray for you now. This church is dead if we're not doing that. It goes beyond the cerebral. I don't care if we're going late. I don't care. We need to hear this. The church needs to hear this. It's time to wake up and not just intellectually. It's time to wake up spiritually. There are children who are struggling with things that children struggle with today that we didn't struggle with. Are we taking a knee next to them and telling them, no matter what you do, I will always love you because that's what God does with me. This is the body. We're the saints. We're the representation, the visible church on earth. Are we doing our job? AC squared, I want to know if we're doing our job. Do the single mothers walk in here going, I am strung out on my kids and my job and everything. Do the married moms walk in here and say that? And do we look at them and say, I'm so proud of you. God is so proud of you. Because you are doing what he has called you to do. Your greatest responsibility is those children. Love them. Train them. Teach them. Do we give words of wisdom based on the text that we read during the week? Or do we just walk in here, say, hi, how are you doing? Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Oh, that's a good sermon, Matt. That one got me fired up today. And do nothing. I'm guilty. I'm not looking down on you. I'm probably below you because God has gifted me to teach. How often am I using my other spiritual gifts? Lock myself in my room, isolated from my wife, ignoring my marriage so that I can preach. Oh, and don't come to me and say, Matt, you need a break. God called me to do this. He's going to give me the energy to do it. He's also going to supply her with what she needs. But every once in a while, smack me and say, how are you loving your wife? And then ask her, is he doing it? Or do I need to kick him in his you-know-what? How do we love one another around here? Yes, this is life. This is family. It's vital. It's vital. It's important to everything we do here that we exercise our spiritual gifts. And they are all, I can't say it clearly enough, they are all for today. 
Talking about every day here, saints. Something's got to change. And especially on Sundays when we gather to fellowship as a family. I pray that every Sunday following this Sunday is never the same. I pray that the expectation when we walk through the door is that someone's going to pray for me. Even if I don't ask for it. That someone is going to give me a word of wisdom. That God gave them the word of wisdom to give me during the week as they were pursuing him. And he's going to use them to speak to me. That's my hope. Which means we have to be in the word. I want us to be fearless. I want us to be a people who keep in step with the Spirit wherever He decides to take us, whenever He decides to take us there. That's the takeaway. That's the answer to the million-dollar question. We never know what God has in store for us. They never knew about David. They thought it was Obed. Then the people in David's life never knew about Jesus. All I know is we need to be obedient. That means we must embrace the gifts that God has given us, and we must use them to establish His kingdom in accordance with His will, according to His word. We need to walk away from today knowing that God has called us to walk worthy of the call that He's placed on our lives. And simultaneously, we need to hold one another accountable to the highest standard when it comes to using the gifts that God has given us. We will. We will do this in accordance with the text of Scripture for God's glory and our joy. Now, we're going to finish with a song because if you got to rush out of here because you got something going on with your day, you are, grace, pay, go, whatever, go do you. But for the rest of us that want to worship God in song and thank him that we're more than conquerors and that we have what it takes to keep walking day by day because God will give us what we need when we need it, then we'll stand up and we'll sing a song and we'll finish with a doxology. And then maybe we'll pray for one another. Maybe we won't just run out to our cars and go, I did it! High five, babe! We made it to church today. Maybe we'll stop and we'll be like, maybe God's talking to you right now. Maybe right now God is laying it on your heart that you have to look at someone today and be like, I know what you're going through. Maybe that's it. Doesn't have to be some huge philosophic pontification. Maybe it's just looking at them and being like, Amy, I know you're crushed in spirit. You've been moving for months. And we did a terrible job to help you guys. So forgive us, Brent and Amy, forgive us. We're sorry that we did that. And we know that you're prepping to launch Next Defenders, so I'm praying for you. Deb, I can't imagine what it's like to never eat a meal when I eat three of them every day, I know that that must bother you. You're probably sick of drinking your meals. I want to pray that God would give you the best meal when you're in paradise with him for eternity. Are these the kinds of things that we're doing? If we're not doing them, we're a dead church. And I don't want to be in a dead church because God is going to hold me responsible for what the church culture is like here. And I need you to keep me accountable. So that's the answer to the million dollar question. That's it. The gifts of the Spirit. Come on, worship team. Come on up. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. Father, I pray that you would bless each of the individuals who are here and those who will watch online as we consider what you're calling us into, how you're calling us deeper, and Lord, what it is that you expect from us so that we will not feel duty, but we will feel pleasure in fulfilling the call that you've placed on our lives. 
Father, I pray that you would bless our endeavors. When we mess something up, when we give a word of prophecy and it doesn't come to pass, remind us that we're not prophets like in the Old Testament, that we operate as prophets in the New Testament. Not to speak. I pray that you would give us wisdom and dreams and visions, Lord. I pray that when somebody messes it up, we extend grace while calling them to correction. I pray, Lord, that everything we do in our bodies and in this body would honor you first. Because if we are seeking to honor you, then the blessing will ripple out, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.